This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I am Steve Wessler, the host of the show. We will be talking today about Palestine and about efforts in the United States to silence the voice of Palestinians. My guests are Diala Shamas and Tarek Ismael, both of whom practice law in New York City, focusing on human rights and social justice issues. Both are Palestinian. Good afternoon, Diala and Tarek. I know both of my guests through one of my sons. So Tarek, I will be, I think the conversation will be going back and forth between the three of us. But if you could talk about how your family was impacted by the NAPCA. Uh, thank you so much, Steve, and thanks for for having Diela and myself. It's a pleasure to uh, be able to take some some time to sit back and reflect on these issues, um, if uh, such a pleasure exists. Um, so my my family, um, you know, I, both of my parents are Palestinian. Um, my mom's family is from the Jerusalem area, um, and um, my dad's family uh, is from the north. Um, from uh, a small town between uh, Haifa and Akka, uh, Haifa and Akko, uh, in, in what are in what's today Israel. Um, the town is called Shab. Um, and um, my, you know, my grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents uh, lived in Shab, and it was a very small village. Um, you know, they, they were one of the biggest olive uh, exporters in all of the Galilee. Um, and, um, you know, Lebanese migrants would come down and uh, pick olives from the groves there and take them back to Lebanon and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, my grandfather was a train conductor and he used to drive a train up and down the Mediterranean coast. Um, and, it, you know, in 1948, um, uh, gangs, effectively, the Haganah and the Ergun, terrorist organizations, which later became uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, uh, came and, um, you know, effectively ethnically cleansed the city, the town. Um, my my uh, dad's siblings and his sister uh, and his mom and his dad um, were forced to flee on foot. They were expelled. Uh, and walked across the mountains north to, to Lebanon. Um, one of my uncles had polio, um, and you know there was a real question as to whether or not they would be able to carry him. My aunt still suffers on her side from having carried him, you know, north all that way. Uh, they ended up in Shatila refugee camp, um, where where my dad grew up, um, and this was a pattern, by the way. I mean this. This sort of expulsion happened methodically throughout all of Palestine. Uh, and, throughout uh, historic. Tara, do you have a sense of how many people um, either fled as refugees or were expelled? I mean, there are estimates that range as high as a million people. Um, the kind of ballpark range that's kind of frequently cited is 750,000 refugees. Um, you know, at the time, and of course now, if you think about it, we're now at sort of refugees onto the fourth or, or fifth generation. 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's how my family ended up uh, leaving Lebanon, um, uh, leaving Palestine rather to Lebanon. And, you know, the history goes on from there, but, but that's how the Nakba affected them, uh, just like it affected many, many families who were similarly situated. And uh, where did you grow up? So, um, you know, I'll continue the story for the sake of answering your question, Steve. Uh, you know, my, my dad has, uh, if I'm counting right, eight siblings. Um, they, you know, in Lebanon, uh, even though my dad was born there and one of his brothers were, was born there, none of them uh, were entitled to citizenship. They were refugees. To this day, my cousins, my uncles and aunts, kids uh, didn't get citizenship in Lebanon. They're stateless. Um, and so, you know, my dad and his siblings had to find somewhere to be able to make a life. In Lebanon, for example, it's illegal for Palestinians to work 95 different jobs outside of refugee camps. So, you know, they had to go somewhere to, to make a life for themselves. And so I have, you know, one aunt who um, lives in Turkey. I have another aunt who was in Syria for a long time until the Civil War uh, and went back to Lebanon to live in a refugee camp there. I have another uncle who ended up in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, an uncle in Canada, an uncle who spent most of his time in Greece. And my dad um, ended up in Ohio, um, the most luxurious of those places, as, as you you know, as you might suggest, um, and that's where I was uh, born and, and raised. Um, and uh, when, when were sort of the key points of you growing up, um, sort of understanding what had happened both to your family and about what, um, uh, what, what was happening right now in Palestine and in Israel? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there, there wasn't really like an awakening. Uh, and I think Diala, like, uh, we've talked about this a bunch, like, there, there was no point of awakening. Uh, the awakening was realizing that I can't see all of my aunts and uncles in the same place unless we try really, really hard. Um, and certainly we can't see each other in Palestine. Um, none of my uh, aunts and uncles have been back to Palestine uh, since, um, and my dad has never been there. Um, and so just thinking about, like, how am I supposed to see my cousin? Uh, you know, we used to do this exercise with my dad where we would, like, map out the family tree and count how many cousins I have on each side. And my dad would sort of tell me, oh, you have cousins who are my age and things like that, you know. Um, and, and just figuring out, like, the way that all, like, you know, you imagine sort of a family reunion, a barbecue happening, uh, you know, in a park somewhere, uh, you know, in Virginia or wherever people have family reunions. Um, you know, we can't do that. Um, and so that reality really hit home for me. It was a truly uh, refugee experience that my family went through. And as things happened day to day in Palestine, it was just so obvious to connect the gang that had led to my family's expulsion uh, with the gang that was occupying the West Bank, the gang that was, you know, keeping my mom's aunt from getting her medicine at the hospital, the gang that was stopping Diala every time, and I'll let her talk about it, that she went to school. It's the same gang. Um, and so every time, you know, I would see it on the news, I couldn't do anything but think about how difficult it was to see my cousin. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, that reality, um, 
you know, made it so that when we were kind of on street corners uh, in Toledo, holding up poster board that we bought at Rite Aid saying, you know, and the U.S. aid to Israel, it was directly connected to uh, wanting to barbecue chicken with my uncles. Um, and, and it's really that simple. Yeah, it's, it's that simple and it's, it's also that hard as well. Um, but uh, you, have, uh, you have a connection to Maine um, because I understand that you uh, went to Seeds of Peace. Uh, and for people who don't know, Seeds of Peace is uh, a, uh, runs a camp in the summer in Cumberland County for uh, Palestinians and Israelis plus people from other conflict places. Um, uh, what was that like for you? Well, um, we went to a Sea Dogs game, which was awesome. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it, was a, it was a sight to see all these Palestinians and Egyptians and Moroccans and other Arabs with their, you know, derbekis, uh, their, their tabla drums, sort of like uh, cheering on the Sea Dogs. Uh, that, was, that was a sight uh, to behold, and it kind of resonated with me. But look, like at the end of the day, Seeds of Peace was designed as a way for people to imagine coexistence um, when the reality doesn't permit coexistence to happen. So I met folks who I really, really uh, bonded with who were Palestinians. Uh, I met people who were Israelis who I bonded with as well. Um, but when you thought about it and when you talk to people about sort of what it would be like for them to be able to see each other um, in the future, you realize that quickly that this sort of like fantasy uh, camp uh, was really nothing more than a fantasy. And I think a lot of Palestinians who went through that, many Israelis, uh, and I dare say uh, many Americans like me and uh, like Seth, uh, your son, um, were awoken by that difficulty. The idea that, you know, the same Israeli sitting in the bunk uh, with me, listening to our counselor lead us, the outsiders, um, in three years, was going to be holding a gun to my mom's head. Um, because that's their job. They were part of the gang too, right? And so like at the end of the day, um, it was really a, a radicalizing experience for many of us who were open to be radicalized by it. And I use radicalized, of course, conscious of the fact that uh, the U.S. government has taken over that word and turned it into like a, a bad word. Um, but it was really sort of an awakening experience for many of us um, who were able to talk about these things openly for the first time with other people who hadn't um, thought about them so much. Well, thank you. Um, I, I want to come back to um, sort of what happened later, but um, Diala, um, can you talk about your family and history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also love, you know, hearing Tarek, uh talk about kind of how, how he has connected all of these dots. You know, for me, in some ways, um, my my family history well whenever it starts right that's a big question but my um my grandparents were also expelled um or you know in 1948 uh both of my grandparents they were married a young couple living in west jerusalem in the mosrara neighborhood um in in 1948 and then when the so the mosrara neighborhood is is really on the border of, of what later became the border between East and West Jerusalem. 
Um, so a lot of intense fighting was right there. So they had to, in the middle of the night, pack up whatever they could and, and flee the fighting with their two younger children, my uncle and my aunt. Um, and after some bumping around back to the village in Bejala, which is um, you know, north of Jerusalem and presently in the West Bank, uh, then to Jericho, they finally kind of settled in East Jerusalem, um, just a, <laughs> maybe a 20-minute walk from where they were before, but on the other side of, of the Green Line, and, and started again from scratch. My grandfather was a, a taxi driver at that point. He had um, kind of been a jack-of-all-trades, um, but really had, you know, had this car, which was extremely valuable, um, you know, so in the aftermath of 1948, he was really shuttling refugees to and from the border um, to help people, um, you know, uh, get to safety. And um, from there on, he started a little travel business with his car. He bought another couple of cars and then learned, you know, archaeology and history by um, by listening to these American professors who would come and give these uh, these archaeological tours, and he started um, with my grandmother really kind of holding down the books, this, um, this travel agency that's still there now. Um, so my mother was born and raised in Jerusalem, uh, in East Jerusalem, and I was born there. Um, so uh, East Jerusalem is, you know, came under occupation, Israel occupied um, the West Bank, which includes East Jerusalem, in 1967. Um, and so I grew up under the situation of, of, of occupation, which, you know, had its, uh, I guess, you know, you often hear about the sort of more physical aspects of it, right? I had to go through checkpoints to go to school. Um, I, you know, there's army uh, patrolling uh, the cities. Uh, hey, can, I just have a question. Could, how long would it take you to get through a checkpoint? And was it was it easy? Was it scary? What, what was it like? I mean, it's funny. I always talk about how our, my sense of time is actually um, terrible, but I think in part it's checkered by like what phase or era the checkpoint of checkpoints we were in, you know? I mean, growing up between the early, the mid 80s um, through, to, you know, the second intifada of 2002, my house at one point for about a dozen of those years was literally maybe uh, 100 feet from a checkpoint, um, the main checkpoint corridor between Jerusalem and Ramallah. And so we had to go through that uh, to get to school. And depending on the, the years, you know, often it would be an hour of waiting. Um, sometimes it would be uh, easier. And then there were always the kind of unpredictable, what we call flying checkpoints also along the way. And I think it's that unpredictability of what your daily life looks like that really characterizes the Palestinian experience under occupation. Not being able to know what time you'll get to school, not being able to know whether you're going to be able to get home in time for dinner. Um, and, and this complete lack of sense of kind of control over your daily life, which I still kind of carry with me to this day, right? These are these have lasting impacts. Um, it's still surprising to me when I can put a destination in my Google Maps in New York, and generally, depending on the situation of the subway, like get there relatively knowing the you know the the time. So that that unpredictability was really kind of a a big 
marker of what life is like. But I also don't want to just talk about those aspects. I mean, I think what people oftentimes don't hear about as much is the sort of bureaucratic forms of violence that um, also occur. And, and this is not just under occupation, right? This also happens um, to Palestinians who are citizens of Israel and who, so, so, so Palestinians like Tadis relatives who um, were able to stay after 1948, eventually got citizenship and um, live in Shab. Um, and I hope you can, you know, get to talk about uh, them also. But the, the sort of discrimination at every level um, is, I think, also a big marker. So I can say a little bit more about what that's... Yeah, just um, maybe one or two examples. But before that, um, uh, I want to remind people, or well, people who have just joined, this is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of the show. We will be talking about Palestine and about efforts in the United States to silence the voices of Palestinians. My guests are Diala Shamas and Tarek Ismael, both of whom practice law in New York City, focusing on human rights and social justice issues. Both are Palestinian. So. Um, so, yeah, I'll just really quickly give a, a few examples of the less understood aspects of this, right? So even things like getting a permit to build a house, right? We, ev everything um, in, in East Jerusalem, where I grew up, is fully controlled by the Jerusalem municipality. And so, you know, we weren't able to, um, to, to build because you need to get a permit. And um, it's been documented, you know, human rights organizations have issued report after report showing how there is um, complete discrimination in the permitting system so that Palestinians cannot simply grow their families and build and have homes um, and end up living really crammed in these um, neighborhoods with inadequate services um, and, and, uh, and that sort of thing, even though they pay uh, the taxes um, at, at the same, in fact, higher rates than, than um, the Jewish Israelis um, down the street have to. Um. So what I'd, I'd like to do is to, um, I think we'll come back to that um, later, but to talk about um, uh, what you're doing, what you're doing now, or uh, what, what, what brought you to um, Tiawa to, to the U.S. and Derek, uh, you were, um, both of you became lawyers. What um, is, what is that work? Um, does some of it focus on the issues we've been talking about and but also on other issues? Um, maybe Tarek, yeah. you, can, you can start. Uh, I'm gonna, one second actually. Diallo, why don't you go while I figure out the audio situation over here? Okay, sure. Um, well, so I came to the U.S. first for college, and um, then I, I went back to Palestine and worked for a couple, for a little over a year at an Israeli human rights organization called B'Tselem, um, and there did actually work in some of the, the, the parts of the West Bank that um, were under the most aggressive aspects of the occupation that were experiencing regular daily settler violence. So violence at the hands of Israeli settlers 
um, you know, in, in living in in, um, in in outposts in close proximity to Palestinian cities in places like Hebron. And we were documenting that violence um, and the complicity of the Israeli army, the Israel Defense Forces, um, in that violence, right, turning a complete blind eye or oftentimes even protecting the settlers and allowing them to throw stones at the people that I was working with and so on. And um, at some point, um, that turned into doing videos? Yeah, so what we did was um, on this theory, and this is also before the times of iPhones, right, um, or any kind of handheld cameras, uh, we we thought that one of the main one of the main arguments that the army always raised for refusing to investigate incidents of settler violence, you know, the burning of olive groves, the th stone throwing, um, beating of children on the way to school, that sort of thing. And by the way, the when, when you say settler, you're talking about Israelis who are coming into the West Bank. Yeah, so Israeli civilians who are kind of unlawfully present in the West Bank, um, all, always, um, not usually, with the kind of consent and actual support of the Israeli army, right? And that's actually internationally unlawful. Um, you know, settlements are illegal under the international law of occupation, um, but that obviously hasn't really <laughs> mattered on the ground, right, in terms of the daily lives of Palestinians. So we um, actually worked with Palestinians who lived in these the hardest hit areas, the families that were regularly coming under attack and <laughs> gave them video cameras and asked them to film because maybe we thought with that footage, with that evidence, we'd actually be able to get investigations opened or maybe we would be able to get kind of public opinion in Israel to turn on this theory that if people knew, then they would behave differently. I mean, we had some extremely um, powerful and heartbreaking footage come out of that program, things that even I, who had grown up there, hadn't really fully known about. Could you but, describe one of them? You know, the very first video, actually, um, within a week after we gave this young woman a camera, um, she, uh, she was from the Abu Aisha family in Hebron and uh, lived across the street, literally, from one of the a settlement, a settler outpost, a house that had been taken over by Israeli settlers in the heart of the city of Hebron in what's called H2. And the settler woman, um, who we you know was dressed like this kind of orthodox practicing religious um, uh, Jewish woman, came up to, so the, the Abu Aisha family, I should just ex explain, had uh, experienced for years a lot of violence at the hands of their neighbors. Um, and so they ended up having to put up a cage, like actual caging around the house to protect their house and their windows and their kids from the stones and the garbage that, that, this, that the settlers were, were throwing at them. And so there was, it's, it was very small, a small thing, but it was really powerful where the woman filmed as this other, the settler woman was coming, walking up to her, spitting at her and telling her, go back into your cage because the girl was trying to help her brother come up, walk up the street to the house, home, coming home from school. And he was being kind of harassed by some of the other kids, the, the settler, you know, kids from across the street. And that footage went viral before the age of things going viral, but it went, it aired on like primetime television in Israel. And I think it's sort of Israelis 
were a little bit shocked because, you know, she was cursing at the woman. She was calling her a, a whore. Um, she was spitting at her. She was behaving in these ways that people didn't identify with that kind of religious uh, exterior, right? And, and did it, um, did it and the other videos you did um, make a difference for how the IDF would operate or? Um, no, and that's actually why I came. That's why I went to law school. Um, you know, it was this realization that, this, that every time we would do this, we would do so much work to try to raise awareness about these issues. And it would always be dismissed as a few bad apples, right? When actually what was happening here was systemic. Um, this was violence at a broad scale and our efforts to get individual investigations were never gonna go anywhere. Um, and so, you know, I, I came to the US wanting, you know, for law school um, after and, that experience. And what year was that? 2007, I believe. And Tara, uh, when did you come to go to law school? Uh, I started... I started law school uh, the year that Diala did, and Diala, I think it was 2008. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like I said, my sense of time is not great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't remember when I started law school. That's how long I've been practicing. Um, um, so, so can each of you um, talk about the work that you do, um, uh, both the work that relates to the issues we've been talking about, but also the uh, on other issues that you work with. Um, so, uh, Tarek, maybe you can talk sure. about that first. Sure. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, was, um, I was a junior in high school um, and ironically had just sort of like gone through um, Seeds of Peace um, uh, when sort of the events of September 11th, uh, 2001 took place. And, you know, I, I grew up going to a mosque in Toledo, Ohio. If you're driving sort of down I-75, um, you'll just see this like white sort of spaceship looking structure in the middle of cornfield. That's the mosque that I went to. And it was a very, very much like a communal space um, for, for myself and for my family and for everyone uh, that, you know, that I knew growing up, uh, and, you know, over to after, after 9-11, uh, you know, you hear these stories all the time, but it's important to reiterate them. I mean, my sister was told by numerous people at school, she was in first grade, a, a number of people had told her, like, you know, my mom and dad say, I can't play with you anymore, um, you know, because you're related to Osama bin Laden. Um, are those, things sticking out of your mosque, missiles, um, are they going to shoot us? Referring to the uh, minarets, you know, um, uh, and the kids in the mosque at the same time internalizing that um, and, and thinking a lot about that and sort of pointing up at the sprinklers in the ceiling and saying, uh, you know, the FBI is listening to us. Um, oh, there and, was a lot, there was a lot of fear, it sounds like. So there was a lot of sort of internalized fear that sort of like, uh, worked its way through the community. So, um, you know, I, I want to put that sort of to one side and say that, like, actually, when I met Diala um, in the summer of 
2000, what were we saying again? 2007 into 2008 was actually the first time that I went to Shab. Um, the first time really anyone of my generation had gone to Shab, my family's village. Um, and I met some, some people there who were related to us. And I only found out that they were there by just sort of like going around and asking. These are like fifth, sixth, seventh degree cousins at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I met an old lady there who really kind of affected me. And, and we were talking, and she, not that she wasn't that old then, um, but we were talking and, and you know, she, she asked me about my family and I told her what I told you, uh, Steve, which is sort of that they were kind of scattered around the world. And as far as I was concerned, you know, uh, that was a gift because wherever I went, uh, you know, I had a place to lay my head and she started crying. Uh, you know, these are people who are in Shab uh, and had been expelled and then were allowed back in by the military in the 70s and were forced to lease their own land back from the Israeli government, right? So this is land that they owned, was deemed absentee when they were expelled. And when they returned as Israeli citizens, were forced to lease it back. Um, and so when I sat down to talk to her, she looked at me and I told her about my aunts and uncles and she said, listen, you know, uh, what we lost in the Nekba was not like this land that we're sitting on or these olive trees all around us or even these houses that we're sitting in. What we lost, she said to me, was my ability to look at your face, look into your eyes and tell you who your parents are, right? And so this, this theme kind of stuck with me as like I went through law school. I kind of internalized it. I thought a lot about it. I spent time working uh, after I graduated on sort of September 11th related issues because those were the issues of the day for me that my family, again, here was, was dealing with, that my community was dealing with. Um, you know, I, I worked on a report that looked into uh, counterterrorism prosecutions and how the federal government um, handled those entrapment cases, which is its own topic. And Biela and I can come back and talk to you about that separately another day, maybe. Um, but, you know, uh, as I saw those families in those cases separated from each other uh, with their sons in prison uh, and, uh, you know, really kind of violently torn apart, um, I, I really wanted to, like, work with families who were going through the same sort of violence. And, and that's how I ended up working with parents who have their kids removed by by children's services as roundabout as that may seem. Well, it's not, it doesn't seem roundabout at all. And so um, you are a uh, professor at, um, at uh, the City University of New York's law school. Um, and uh, just in a sentence or two, uh, what is it that you are doing there? Yeah, so I spent some time at, at the CLEAR project at CUNY working on, again, sort of national security related issues. And, and I've been so lucky to, to be able to now um, continue working with CLEAR, but also um, directing the family, the family law clinic there where we mostly focus on, um, or my work mostly focuses on um, this, this very issue, this naughty issue of when the state can intervene to tear a family apart and how to best uh, support a family so that they can uh, stay together. Well, 
Thank you. Um, Diawa, maybe you can yeah. talk about um, your legal career and bringing it up to the present. Sure. So, you know, I came to law school thinking I would um, go back to, to Palestine and, and, and do human rights work there. Um, but, but actually, I, you know, similarly sort of arrived here in this post 9-11 moment and quickly through some work um, in a law school clinic um, with clients who were detained at Guantanamo Bay, um, you know, I was really drawn to and saw the similarities of how this framing of national security and this framing of, of, of terrorism um, is used to um, justify end runs around, you know, legal protections and trampling over people's rights. And so I, I uh, obviously the Guantanamo Bay kind of military court system was really familiar because that's what governs in Palestine, this like military regime, including a governing, you know, over, over, over civilians. But then I became increasingly interested in how that logic and framework was imported into the U.S. domestically and really seeing and resonating with, even though my family is not Muslim, um, my family is Christian Palestinian, uh, with, with the experience of Muslim communities in the U.S. who were also, who had this framing of, um, you know, enemies, right, uh, being applied to them, this idea that they were enemies from within and that they were being treated um, with suspicion. And the FBI and local police departments engaging in massive surveillance and questioning campaigns of those communities. So actually, I spent my first five years out of law school working um, at, a, at a legal organization where uh, the CLEAR project, which is also where Thought It worked. And, and what um, does CLEAR start? Is that an acronym? Yeah, it, sounds, it stands for the Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility Program. It's a, it's a mouthful, but um, essentially serves legal, uh, serves uh, communities that are kind of uh, impacted by these sets of, you know, things that are in a, at the intersection of national security, whether it's immigration uh, problems because they, you know, they come from Muslim majority countries, or if it's just straight up old school surveillance, infiltration, investigation um, by virtue of their identity. And, and so that really, um, that, first of all, that like approach of working directly with affected communities is something that really kind of resonated with me. Um, and, then, uh, and then that framing also is something that felt really, really familiar. So I- And, and then at some point you moved on Right. So, so my work now, you know, I still do a lot of uh, work around, you know, especially with this administration around all the different ways in which, um, uh, you know, I work with Yemeni communities who are subject to all sorts of travel restrictions, including a travel ban um, by this administration. But I also um, really wanted to kind of go back to thinking about how we can use the law, if we can use the law to um, support the Palestinian uh, freedom movement, right? And and what I found in the in my time in the U.S. and it's been a while now, um, you know, I thought originally that I would be doing really international human rights facing work, and that had been the model, and that's really what a lot of the folks in the legal community who do human rights work kind of think about. You think about going to international institutions or litigating cases in U.S. courts that are bringing accountability to. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, grave, uh, you know, human rights abusers. But what I, what I found actually is that um, there's another problem, which is that any effort 
to talk about Palestinian rights in the U.S. is subject to an incredible amount of um, scrutiny and attack. And so much of my time now at the Center for Constitutional Rights has unfortunately ended up being um, simply defending the ability for, of Palestinians and those who stand in solidarity with Palestinians to organize and to tell their stories, even in the ways that we've been telling our stories on this, on this interview today, you know. Um, so uh, let me hold on that because I, I want us to talk about, uh, have enough time to talk about with both of you of the silencing of Palestinian voices. Um, um, and um, so I want to remind people who've just come in um, or that this is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of this show. We will be talking about Palestine and about efforts in the United States to silence the voices of Palestinians. My guests are Diala Shamas and Tarek Ismael, both of whom practice law in New York City, focusing on human rights and social justice issues. Both are Palestinian. So um, for either one of you, you were in the midst of talking about this. How, how serious is, uh, and give me perhaps some examples of how does, is, is the silencing of, of the voices of Palestinians coming from government or is it coming from um, people who have different views or is it both? Okay, <laughs> I can start. Um, so there are so many ways in, in, in which it happens. And so I thought it's going to have to fill in here, as I'm sure I'll miss some, um, and is also a testament of how aggressive this is. I mean, so we've seen um, a rise in um, a, a lot of this is coming from pretty well-resourced private actors. And, um, and we're seeing, and it takes multiple forms. You know, there are websites like Canary Mission that act as blacklists where they'll just put up the names of university students, um, young faculty who are, you know, not yet tenured and, um, and, and senior can you, them. As, can, you, can you give me an example of what they're alleging or what's the content, um, presumably, that right. these organizations have are right. arguing that there's a problem. Well, so the narrative is uh, usually one of two things. Uh, oftentimes, it's that um, any support for Palestinians equals to support for terrorism. So that's a really uh, that's a really powerful one because the, any anytime you use a T word, right, um, it does a lot of work and shuts shuts the conversation down. And we see that not just in the Palestine context, but that's also, you know, what, um, why the state is able to get away with so much um, when it applies it to Muslim communities or the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all, all, all of these kinds of things. And then the other strain is really this, uh, this growing, um, uh, unfortunately, notion that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. And that's being pushed by a lot of these groups that are also funded by the Israeli can, government. Can you give me, without names of people, just give me an example of, of uh, um, people, whether it's the government or it's, or it's others, 
trying to silence um, Palestinians and maybe other people sure. from okay. criticizing. Well, I'll give you a, an example that I worked on. Um, Airbnb. Airbnb uh, took a decision after lots of um, you know, human rights campaigning to delist, to remove settlement properties from its platform. So this is like pretty light criticism. It's not even criticism, honestly, of the Israeli government. It's simply a decision to abide by international law and not be complicit in internationally unlawful activity. So, so, what, so what, what was unlawful under international law with what Airbnb was doing? So the idea that you would profit off of illegal um, settlement properties is something that uh, you know, certainly runs against the, the principles of business and human rights and arguably, depending on the scale and the scope, is also um, aiding and abetting those, those, those internationally unlawful activities. And so, um, so Airbnb decided after, um, you know, a, a lot of campaigning that it, it, it shouldn't allow settlers, you know, uh, in, who are directly involved in you know, land theft and dispossession to rent their settlement properties, right? Their, um, their bed and breakfast in, um, in a Jewish only uh, settlement to, to the public. And so they just, it was just 200, prop, 200 um, properties that were in settlements. Human Rights Watch issued a report um, documenting this and asking and calling on Airbnb to delist these properties. And on the eve of that report, you know, Airbnb took this, this decision. It was the right thing to do, which was say, we're not going to do this anymore. They immediately were sued by a group of settlers um, who said, we are being discriminated against as Jews and as Israelis because Airbnb is not letting us uh, list our illegal properties on their website. And, and was that suit in Palestine or in the U.S.? In a U.S. federal court, and that's what's crazy. It was brought under the Fair Housing Act, which is this, you know, really significant um, civil rights uh, law that we that is intended to pr to protect the most vulnerable segments and, of the, the and U.S. What, community. What was the result of the litigation, or is it still going on? Um, so, well, we had a bit of an intervention in this on this theory that. There's a whole conversation here that's happening apropos the silencing of Palestinians between Airbnb and settlers, where settlers are framing their their victimhood, right, and they're and they're describing, you know, this pretty basic um, decision as anti-Semitic, um, as a, as you know, anti-Jewish and anti-Israeli, and so we actually went and we found um, uh, you know, the, the the Palestinians who actually own the land that these individual settlers who sued. Um, uh, had their properties on, and they were able to intervene in this litigation, um, and not to get too much into the details, but really the purpose there was to reinsert Palestinian voices and try to set, set the record straight, right, to flip the script again, because it was such an absurd situation to begin with. So, so Tarek, have you been involved um, in issues like this, maybe not in the same way as has the hour. Um, so in, in some ways I've, I've been involved sort of uh, not, not by choice. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to zoom a little bit out from even where Diala's uh, sort of pointing to and say that like this effort has been a, uh, a decades long effort 
to stunt Palestinian advocacy uh, in in the United States. Um, there, uh, you could call it sort of advocacy on behalf of Palestinians, on, on behalf of the rights of Palestinians, or you could call it criticism of the state of Israel for the billions of dollars that the U.S. government sends to Israel every year. Whatever you call it, there's been an effort to stop that sort of work for four decades. Um, you know, and, and part and parcel of that strategy has been to um, warp the notion of a very real and hurtful phenomenon that is anti-Semitism, um, you know, discrimination against Jewish people as Jewish people, uh, a tradition that goes back centuries and centuries, which we as Palestinians uh, have seen, uh, you know, decade after decade, having had uh, Jewish neighbors in our uh, in our villages for a really long time, um, and to conflate that notion with the criticism of the state of Israel. And so there's this idea that, and, and they call them the three Ds, right? Delegitimization, demonization, or using double standards uh, with the state of Israel um, is per se, meaning, uh, sorry for the uh, legalese, is by definition uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, but, but you know, if we use that sort of logic on any other uh, apartheid regime in history, of course, uh, we, we wouldn't call it uh, whatever, the length, whatever the word was for anti-Afrikaner uh, to say that South Africa is practicing apartheid on the majority black population in South Africa and it needs to end, right? But what's happened is that there has been this campaign to insert this legal definition of anti-Semitism wherever that legal definition can make its way in. So the Department of Education, for example, at the federal level has had this definition of anti-Semitism shunted upon it by, by this campaign. And groups which have traditionally been at the fringe like and have sort of innocuous names like NGO Monitor, for example, uh, you know, are looking out for any criticism of, uh, of Israel. And when it happens, I'll give you one example. At my law school, CUNY, there was a report uh, on, you know, um, the, the Israeli military's conduct at the border with Gaza. Um, this, again, we'll, we'll all refer to them as the same gangs who uh, expelled my, my family from their home. Their conduct on the border with Gaza, in which they were aiming at young kids and shooting them in the legs. Uh, they wrote this report uh, out of the CUNY uh, Law Human Rights and Gender Justice Clinic with Defense for Ch Children International Palestine. Uh, they put this report out, and in any other context, if a military is shooting at kids, it's a it's it's a it's a no-brainer. You know, you report on it as a human rights institution. You try to raise awareness. NGO Monitor lobbied the uh, the trustees of CUNY of CUNY, all of CUNY, not just the law school to tell them that this report was anti-Semitic because it criticized the state of Israel, amongst other sort of tropes that Diala touched on, where and, you, know, you call... And did it result in um, uh, dampening the voices of, of uh, well, so, Palestinians and others? And, and just like in a minute, because we're, sure. we're moving pretty quickly through our hour. So, so two things I would say really quickly. Um, one is that... Um, Dealing with the problem 
is in and of itself dampening the voice, right? Uh, as Toni Morrison said, racism is a distraction. We have to deal with this issue uh, instead of focusing on kids being shot in their, in their legs, right? We have to focus on dealing with NGO monitor. Uh, and, you know, to the school's credit, the school dealt with it in a way that many other schools may not have, right? Other schools have canceled events on Zoom uh, because <laughs> of groups like NGO monitor and so on. So and, and, and we could go on. Um, so I, I want to bring this up to something very recent because the, the Trump administration, uh, which I, both of you know about, and maybe Diallo can talk about what uh, may be coming mm -hmm. um, very quickly. Uh, I think just last week, um, focusing on um, very reputable human rights organizations. Absolutely. So last, just last week, um, the Trump administration's, Depar the Department of State um, announced that they intend to uh, designate, or just, uh, I can't remember the actual languages, um, you know, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and Oxfam as anti-Semitic. Um, under this definition of anti-Semitism that equates um, their, you know, all criticism of Israel and support for the boycott, of you know, settlement goods, for example, as anti-Semitic. And so um, you know, that, that's gotten a lot of attention. You know, even the ADL, which is generally um, silent the, on- The, the Anti-Defamation anti League. Right. Um, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, which is a 100 plus year old um, organization focusing on anti-Semitism and on other issues as well. Yeah, so the ADL, which also generally takes a, a, a stance that's extremely supportive of Israel, actually, and in addition to its important work on anti-Semitism, has actually undermined a lot of Palestinian organizing. Even for them, this was a step too far because we're talking about some of the major human rights organizations, right? But as Tata was describing, you know, this one made the headlines because it's Human Rights Watch and it's Amnesty International. But for a decade, um, for years, this, you know, groups like the CUNY Law School Clinic, you know, students on campuses, um, Palestinian human rights organizations have not been able to, uh, you know, do their work and do that, their advocacy and speak up about Palestinian rights because of the same kinds of smears. So how does this affect um, Palestinians uh, who are working and mm -hmm. living in the United States forward uh, um, under because they're um, citizens or in some other way. Um, how does it affect their uh, ability to advocate, whether as professors, as lawyers, as just citizens? So Steve, I, like I, I, yeah, go, go Diana. And, and we're, we're moving close that, um, like uh, just a, a pretty short answer for each of you. Can I just jump in and say something that we have to say before we move on to answering that question, which is, you know, another big part of this puzzle is also the legislation that we're seeing passing. Currently, 30 states in the U.S. have some form of law, whether it's an executive order or, or bill, that um, that uh, uh, either, um, you know, criminalizes or suppresses efforts to boycott Israeli products or criticize Israel. So that's another aspect of the suppression. Uh, I assume there's some cases coming from a number of organizations, legal organizations, to challenge that. Well, there have been and some successful challenges. You know, the ACLU and the Council on American Islamic Relations you have, have, have been American successful. 
Um, some, but they're barely able to keep up. And the laws have all taken different different forms. And, and so many are still very much on the books and, and also many are not challenged. Um, but they still are, and even if they have no concrete um, effect, like no one has actually been, uh, you know, uh, held to account under these laws, they are out there and they have a chilling effect because they frame things as, you know, this, this kind of speech, this kind of criticism of Israel is beyond the pale and do not even think of going there is the message that that sends. But thought it you were, sorry, I meant to interrupt you. Yeah, no, and, and uh, Tarek, I'm interested, um, what, what have you seen, um, with, without talking about where, but in academia, about how it may affect um, uh, people who are kind of graduate students or um, untenured professors? Steve and, and Diella both, you know, really kind of anticipated where, where I was going to go, which is to say, like, you know, the, the sorts of laws on the book, um, this sort of government, uh, official government action um, has a real chilling effect on the ability of Palestinians and their allies to do any advocacy whatsoever. So professors who are tenure track, um, there's sort of a, a persistent notion that like, well, once I get tenure, then I'll talk about Palestine. But until then, it's too dangerous because who knows who's going to say something about it when I come up for tenure. Or, you know, even this conversation, Steve, that we're having with you right now, Diala and I, could subject us to all sorts of scrutiny by the kind of groups that we mentioned, Canary Mission and Geo Monitor, so on and so forth, um, could very well, you know, you know, find this and point to it as evidence of uh, whatever it is that they want to uh, call it, right? And our st my students are facing this day in and day out. They have to decide whether or not they want to subject themselves to that sort of scrutiny when they go on the job market. So Canary Mission makes it explicit that one of their goals is to out students for this sort of work and demonize them in such a way that they're unhirable, right? Yeah. And, and this happens with Palestine advocates across the, uh, the board. Um. Yeah, that, that kind of um, self-restraint um, uh, can, uh, is really difficult. Um, so I, I want to change, because uh, we're moving toward the end of our time. And if you could just, um, for each of you in about a minute, or add a few seconds to that, um, do you have hope? for Palestine, for the work that you do? Diana? <laughs> um, you know, absolutely. And, and I think um, we should say uh, there wouldn't be such an aggressive effort to silence Palestinian voices if those voices weren't being heard and weren't being perceived as um, a threat to the to the status quo, and so I, I actually take heart in, and I know this sounds um, perverse, the amplification of these attacks on 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 advocacy in support in, uh, in support of Palestinian rights. Um, you know, the Israeli government has allocated millions of dollars through and set up a Ministry of Strategic Affairs to silence Palestinian advocacy in the U.S. And so that says that something, that there is hope and that hope um, and that the organizing and the power building that's happening is, is uh, extremely important. Tarek, one, one minute. Sure. Uh, you know, the, you know, the sort of poet laureate of 
of Palestine, Mahmoud Darwish, has a famous quote um, that we as Palestinians suffer from an incurable malady, uh, and that malady is hope. Um, for every Palestinian who wants to see their family together, for every Palestinian who wants to uh, return back to a place that they can call their own, for every Palestinian who wants to live free of, uh, you know, completely arbitrary shackles, um, there has to be hope. Otherwise, there's nothing. Um, and so what you're seeing as this advocacy day in and day out by virtue of existing, uh, Palestinians exhibit hope every day. And I hope uh, that that sort of work and existence uh, bear, bears fruit someday. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I think it will. Um, and, and I would say from uh, hearing, hearing you um, through this hour, but um, particularly when you have been talking about hope, uh, that neither of you are planning on uh, giving up the advocacy work that you're doing. Um, and that's, that's powerful because it sounds like it's really difficult. So thank you very much for coming um, and talking about issues that uh, aren't always heard uh, in uh, probably in lots of places, uh, but including in, uh, in Maine. Uh, this is Change Ancients, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of this show. We have been talking about uh, Palestine and the efforts of the US, uh, both government as well as uh, people from um, organizations to silence the voices of Palestinians in the US as, and elsewhere. My guest has been Diala Shamas and Tarek Ismail both of whom practice law in New York City, focusing on human rights and social justice issues. Both are Palestinian. You can listen to Change Agents the first Thursday of every month here on WERU-FM and streaming at WERU.org. Um, it was a pleasure to be able to come spend time with both of you. Thank you very much.